All right, let's continue our discussion of Mrs. Dalloway. If you look at the bottom of 2191, we left off, we were inside of Peter's head, and he's uh, in Regent's Park, and it says, uh, when little Elise Mitchell, who had been picking up pebbles to add to the pebble collection which she and her brother were making on the nursery mantelpiece, plumped her handful down on the nurse's knee and scudded off again, full tilt into a lady's legs, Peter Walsh laughed out. So he sees this little girl, you know, run into, you know, knock into a, a woman. In the next paragraph, But Lucretia Warren Smith was saying to herself, It's wicked. Why should I suffer? She was asking as she walked down the broad path. No, I can't stand it any longer, she was saying, having left Septimus, who wasn't Septimus any longer, to say hard, cruel, wicked things, to talk to himself, to talk to a dead man on the seat over there when the child ran full tilt into her, fell flat, and burst out crying. So in this instance, when we switch from Peter's head to uh, Lucretia's head, uh, it's connected by this incident of the girl running into into Lucretia. Uh, Peter sees it from the outside and laughs out loud. We see why it happened, because uh, Lucretia was kind of lost in her own thoughts. But it's one example of the way of how artfully Wolf makes these little transitions from one consciousness to the next, and all these little links between them. Uh, but we're in Lucretia's head here, and you know she's thinking, top of 2192, she had done nothing wrong. She had loved Septimus. She'd been happy. She had had a beautiful home, and there were her sisters lived still making hats. Why should she suffer? Um, so she doesn't, you know, doesn't understand. Then we see the child ran straight back to its nurse, and Rija saw her scolded, comforted, taken up by the nurse who put down her knitting, and the kind-looking man gave her his watch to blow open to, to comfort her. Now, the kind-looking man is Peter, Peter Walsh. Uh, again, they see each other, but they don't know each other. Uh, but we know them as characters in the story. And this, these kinds of uh, connections between the, these different stories, the one of Septimus and the one of the friends of, of uh, Clarissa Dalloway and her acquaintances, uh, keep kind of, of intersecting but never really meeting. Now, Lucretia is... is thinking about their appointment with Sir William Bradshaw, this is a new doctor that Septimus is going to go see. Uh, when she sees him, you know, under the tree talking to himself or to that dead man, Evans. Now, we've mentioned Evans before. Now we, you know, we've heard that he's a dead man. You know, we find out he had been killed in the war. Uh, and so he's hallucinating about this dead comrade of his. And she's thinking about this. You know, he had grown stranger and stranger, he said people were talking behind the bedroom walls. Mrs. Filmer thought it odd. He saw things, too. He had seen an old woman's head in the middle of a fern. Yet he could be happy when he chose. They, uh, so she understands the symptoms, but not, you know, this is, uh, I, even today, I don't think we really fully understand uh, what the mental illness, and certainly they didn't and didn't talk about it much in the early 1920s. Uh, so here are these uh, uh, obvious hallucinations that he's having, but she thinks, well, he could just he could be happy when he chose. Uh, and she remembers that when he suddenly he said, "Now we will kill ourselves," when they were standing by the river. Uh, says, but going home, he was perfectly quiet, perfectly reasonable. 
um, in the, the bottom of that page. But he began to talk aloud, answering people, arguing, laughing, crying, getting very excited and making her write things down. Perfect nonsense it was about death, about Miss Isabel Pole. Uh, she could stand it no longer. She would go back. So we get the, the sense of the exasperation that Lucretia has about this, that she cares for him, but she she literally does not understand what's going on in his head. Um, that's, a, I think, an overriding theme in, the, uh, in uh, Mrs. Dalloway, is the impossibility of fully knowing other people. Um, you know, the, the consciousness switches again on 2193. We get back to Septimus. Um, says the marriage was their marriage was over, he thought, with agony, with relief. Uh, so he has very mixed feelings about this. Um, and we find now we see what this middle state is like from the inside of his head, looking right in the middle of the the page. No crime, love, he repeated, fumbling for his card and pencil, when a sky terrier snuffed his trousers, and he started in an agony of fear. It was turning into a man. He could not watch it happen. It was horrible, terrible, to see a dog become a man. At once the dog trotted away. So he's, these um, hallucinations that he has from inside are these horrible things he has to turn away from and that he has no control over. He, you know, he doesn't want to see it, but, uh, you know, it's just, they just happen to him. Uh, it is not something that he can just kind of choose not to do. But we see that he can also get wrapped up in the, the beauty of his surroundings in the middle of 2194. All of this, calm and reasonable as it was, made out of ordinary things as it was, was the truth now. Beauty, that was the truth now. Beauty was everywhere. So he has this ex, these experiences of beauty as well in this in this state, and uh, uh, Rija reminds me it's it is time, uh, it's time to go to, uh, and he hears Evans answer from behind the tree. Uh, he sees it was Evans, but no mud was on him, no wounds. He was not changed. I must tell the whole world. Septimus cried, raising his hand, as the dead man in the gray suit came nearer, raising his hand like some colossal figure who had lamented the fate of man for ages in the desert, alone with his hands pressed to his forehead, furrows of despair on his cheek, and now sees light on the desert's edge, which broadens and strikes the iron-black figure, and Septimus half rose from his chair, and with legions of men prostrate behind him, he, the giant mourner, receives for one moment on his face the whole— "'But I am so unhappy, Septimus,' said Regia. So he's getting locked into these one of these visions, seeing his his dead war comrade Evans walking towards him, and again Regia interrupts him. There's again constant interruptions of trains of thought. So we find out uh, top of twenty one ninety five. It's a quarter to twelve. Uh, Wolf keeps very careful track of the time, and this is a a single day, and we we always are fairly aware of when it is, what how time is unfolding. Um, and then we get to, we go back to Peter Walsh, and we see him observing uh, Septimus and Lucretia as uh, to be having an awful scene. The poor girl looked absolutely des- desperate in the middle of the morning, but 
What was it about, he wondered. Why had the young man in the overcoat been saying to her, uh, what had he been saying to her to make her look like that? What awful fix had they got themselves into, both to look so desperate as that on a fine summer morning? The amusing thing about coming back to England after five years was that it made, anyhow the first days, things stand out as if one had never seen them before. Lovers squabbling under a tree, the domestic family life of the parks. Um, so he sees them and he can tell that, you know, something is wrong, that the, the girl looks desperate. Um, but he thinks of it as just a kind of a, a lover's quarrel. He He doesn't understand, he doesn't pick up on the fact that Septimus is is not in con- in command of his senses, that he has some mental illness, um, and he. So again, we see characters from the outside. We see events from different characters' points of view, um, and see how opaque they are from the outside. It's only the people who are living and experiencing them that fully understand what's going on, and. Peter's thoughts turn back to the past. He begins thinking of uh, uh, the friend he knew as a girl he knew as a young man and uh, that uh, has married a rich man and lived in a large house near Manchester. Sally Seton, of course, it was Sally Seton. So now we're getting his recollections of her. And notice that it's not at all like uh, uh, Clarissa's. Uh, Sally Seton was a hugely important figure for Clarissa. Uh, He... Peter can barely recall her name. Um, we also talk about Hugh Whitbread, um, and says that uh, he says that uh, top of twenty one ninety six, and of course Hugh had the most extraordinary, the most natural, the most sublime respect for the British aristocracy of any human being he had ever come across, and that uh, for all the people he had ever met, Hugh was the greatest snob. So Hugh Whitbread, who ran into Clarissa earlier in the morning, and we'll see him again later, uh, we get this perspective on on him from Peter, that he's this snob, he's this apologist for the British Empire, the establishment, the man. Um, We find out what he thinks about uh, Mr. Dalloway, Richard Dalloway, uh, middle of 2197. He was a thorough good sort, a bit limited, a bit thick in the head, yes, but a thorough good sort. Whatever, uh, whatever he took up, he did in the same matter-of-fact, sensible way, without a touch of imagination, without a spark of brilliance, but with the in- inexplicable niceness of his type. He ought to have been a country gentleman. He was wasted on politics. Um, so this is a kind of backhanded compliment. He, he, you know, Dalloway's very nice. He's kind of dull and unimaginative, but pretty nice. And he doesn't like the way that uh, Dalloway, Richard Dalloway, tries to impose his opinions uh, on, on Clarissa. And he says, uh, but how could she swallow all that stuff about poetry? How could she let him hold forth about Shakespeare? Seriously and solemnly, Richard Dalloway got on his hind legs and said that no decent man ought to read Shakespeare's sonnets because it was like listening at keyholes. Besides, the relationship was not one that he approved. Uh, now, Shakespeare, you have to know that Shakespeare's sonnets, many of them are addressed to a, a fair young man, uh, which would be a homosexual relationship that uh, uh, Richard wouldn't approve of. And also, notice that the, the, his criticism is you ought, shouldn't read that because it's like listening in at keyholes. It's spying into somebody's privacy. Uh, now, remember, that is exactly what Clarissa values so much about Richard and why, essentially, she seemed to have chosen Richard over Peter, 
that Richard respected her privacy. Uh, he wouldn't intrude into her her life in a, in the way that uh, Peter seemed anxious to you know be completely intrusive in every bit of her life. And Peter remembers that Sally also disliked uh, Richard Dalloway. Said she had implored him, uh, that is, implored Peter, half laughing, of course, to carry off Clarissa, to save her from the Hughes and the Dalloways and all the other perfect gentlemen who would stifle her soul. She wrote reams of poetry in those days. Uh, so, again, he's setting up the, you know, we're getting Peter's perspective on these people and his set of values. Notice at the, at the top of uh, 2198, uh, he talks about that extraordinary gift, that woman's gift of making a world of her own wherever she happened to be. Uh, that, I think, is a wonderful description of, of Clarissa Dalloway. She is very much like that. Uh, in the next paragraph, he starts, No, 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 he was not in love with her anymore. Uh, he, he keeps saying that. He keeps telling us he's not, uh, telling himself he's not in love with her anymore. But clearly he is. The fact that he's protest is like nobody says, no, no, I'm not drunk if they're not actually, you know, drunk. Uh, so no, no, I'm not in love with her. Well, yeah, Peter, you kind of still are. Um, but we get his reflections on Clarissa. I said she made her drawing room a sort of meeting place. She had a genius for it. Over and over, he had seen her take some raw youth, twist him, turn him, wake him up, set him going. Infinite numbers of dull people conglomerated around her, of course, but odd, unexpected people turned up. An artist sometimes, sometimes a writer, queer fish in that atmosphere. So here he, he admires her ability, the, the party she throws, the kind of social ability she has, and the ability she has to bring out things in people. And he goes on the bottom of uh, 2198. Oddly enough, she was one of the most thoroughgoing skeptics he had ever met. And possibly, this was a theory he used to make up to account for her, so transparent in some ways, so inscrutable in others. Possibly, she said to herself, as we are a doomed race, chained to a sinking ship. Her favorite reading as a girl was Huxley and Tyndale, and they were fond of those nautical metaphors. As the whole thing is a bad joke, let us at any rate do our part, mitigate the sufferings of our fellow prisoners, decorate the dungeon with flowers and air cushions, be as decent as we possibly can. So this is Peter's understanding of Clarissa Dalloway's philosophy of life. Again, she says she's a skeptic, and we, she's we've heard from herself that she doesn't believe in God, but she says, and you know, maybe, yes, maybe we're doomed to sinking ship. We're all, we're all going to die, but you know, let's, it's all a bad joke, but let's, um, let's make the best of it. Let's, uh, let's, you know, uh, you know, decorate the dungeon with flowers. Um, and we find out that she's had real tragedy in her life. Her, her, she's witnessed her, her sister, Sylvia die, uh, you know, it says to see your own sister killed by a falling tree before your very eyes, a girl, too, on the verge of life, the most gifted of them, Clarissa always said, was enough to turn one bitter. Um, but it hasn't uh, turned her bitter. Uh, later, she wasn't so positive, perhaps. She thought there uh, were no gods, no one was to blame, and so she evolved this atheist's religion of doing good for the sake of goodness. Um, she enjoyed life immensely. She enjoyed practically everything. 
She had a sense of comedy that was really exquisite, but she needed people, always people, to bring it out, with the inevitable result that she frittered her time away, lunching, dining, giving these incessant parties of hers, talking nonsense, saying things she didn't mean, blunting the edge of her mind, losing her discrimination. Uh, So we see here this mixture of, and I think in some ways, uh, Peter is very insightful. I think a lot of this is very accurate about uh, Clarissa and her her motivations and her her outlook on life, but he also gets you know he can't help but then get very judgmental. Oh, she's just frittering away her life to you know these parties. Uh, she's wasted herself. But he's clearly uh, obsessed still with uh, Clarissa Dalloway. Um, and look at the, the bottom of twenty one ninety nine. He said the compensation compensation of growing old. Peter Walsh thought, coming out of Regent's Park and holding his hat in hand, was simply this. The passions remained as strong as ever, but when it gained, at last, the power which adds the supreme flavor to existence, the power of taking hold of experience and turning it round slowly in the light. So he says the passions are still strong, but you can analyze and understand them. And I think this is very ironic. I I think that would be a kind of maturity, but I don't think it's the kind of maturity that Peter has. He he doesn't really uh, understand himself and his passions very well. He keeps denying that he's uh, in in love uh, with still in love with Clarissa. Uh, you know, he says uh, that uh, he one scarcely needed people anymore at his age. Uh, really, is that is that how he is that how he feels? Um, or look at the top of twenty two hundred. Could it be that he was in love with her then, remembering the misery, the torture, the extraordinary passion of those days? It was a different thing altogether, a much pleasanter thing. The truth being, of course, that now she was in love with him. Really. Uh, again, Peter, Peter just—he does—he is not a very perceptive. He sees things the way he wants them to be, not the way that they are. Um, he thinks, "Oh no, I'm not in love with her." Yes, he is, but she's in love with me. No, she isn't. Um, She—he he is kind of almost unfailingly inaccurate. Um, and notice when he, he thinks about the the woman he wants to marry now, Daisy. Uh, he says that all this bother of coming to England and seeing lawyers wasn't to marry her, but to prevent her from marrying anybody else. He has this sense of, of possessiveness. And then we get this song that interrupts him. He hears this uh, this beggar woman on the street singing, and he is he's touched, and he gives her... Um, uh, gives her some money and then uh, moves on. And this is another uh, transition. We get back to uh, uh, Lucretia at the bottom of 2201. You know, poor old woman, said Regia Warren Smith, waiting to cross. Poor old wretch. Um, So, again, we've got this kind of intersection of these characters who don't know each other but are both in the same same novel here. Um, And... Then, starting on 2202, uh, they're going to Sir William Bradshaw, who's a specialist who's supposed to help out uh, Septimus. And we begin to get the background of Septimus' story. Uh, What's interesting is that while so much of Mrs. Dalloway is told in this stream-of-consciousness, free indirect discourse style, where you get kind of subjective uh, accounts from inside the different characters' heads. This section is told in a very 
much more standard kind of third-person objective uh, viewpoint like you would find in a a 19th century novel like Jane Austen or or Charles Dickens. Um, it, it, It tells us the story, but it gives us some distance on it. And look at some of the things we find out about uh, Septimus' early life. At the top of 2203, uh, there was uh, Miss Isabel Pohl, uh, who was lecturing in the Waterloo Road upon Shakespeare. And he seems to have developed a crush on her and, and looked at uh, Antony and Cleopatra, uh, the Shakespeare play, and he saw her in her green dress. I think it's interesting because we know that uh, Clarissa is also going to be wearing a green dress. His, his boss was Mr. Brewer, uh, and then came the, the war. Uh, it says, the bottom of 2203, Septimus was one of the first to volunteer. He went to France to save an England which consisted almost entirely of Shakespeare's plays and Miss Isabel Pole in a green dress walking in a square. So his his vision of England is, uh, again, Shakespeare's plays and Miss Isabel Pole who, who taught him Shakespeare's plays. There in the trenches, the change which Mr. Brewer desired when he advised football was produced instantly. He developed manliness. So, you know, Septimus was kind of a, a sensitive boy. Uh, his, Mr. Brewer thought, you know, he should, he should play football, and that would, you know, toughen him up and make him manly. Well, the, the war did that for him. He was promoted. He drew the attention, indeed the affection, of his officer, Evans, by Evans by name, So now we know Evans was his commanding officer. It was a case of two dogs playing on a hearth rug, one wearing a paper screw, snarling, snapping, giving a pinch now and then at the old dog's ear, the other lying somnolent, blinking at the fire, raising a paw, turning and growling good-temperedly. And that's an interesting metaphor for this relationship, that there's this young, eager dog that wants to play, and the old dog kind of sits there and and kind of, you know, good-temperedly growls. They had to be together, share with each other, fight with each other, quarrel with each other. But when Evans, Rija had only seen him once, uh, called, um, uh, called him a quiet man, a sturdy red-haired man, undemonstrative in the company of women. When Evans was killed, just before the armistice, in Italy, Septimus, far from showing any emotion or recognizing that here was the end of a friendship, congratulated himself upon feeling very little, and very reasonably, the war had taught him. It was sublime. So, a couple of things here. First of all, the the description of Evans, a, a quiet man who is undemonstrative in the company of women, there's, there's a, at least the hint of a suggestion that there was a, a potential romantic dimension to the friendship between Septimus and Evans. It, it's never fully developed, uh, but it, it, it interestingly parallels the relationship that Clarissa had with Sally Seton. Um, it's one of the many little correspondences between these two very, very different characters in the novel. And as he goes on, uh, Septimus discovers that he could not feel. Uh, His emotions have kind of died. He asks Lucretia to marry him, uh, but it seems like it's because that's what he thinks he's supposed to do. Uh, At the bottom of 2204, 
A beauty was behind a pane of glass. Even taste. Rija liked ices, chocolate, sweet things, had no relish to him. He put down his cup on the little marble table. He looked at people outside. Happy, they seemed, collecting in the middle of the street, shouting, laughing, squabbling over nothing. But he could not taste. He could not feel. In the tear shop, among the tables and the uh, chattering waters, the appalling fear came over him. He could not feel. He could reason. He could read Dante, for example, quite easily. Septimus, do put down your book, said Regia, gently shutting the inferno. He could add up a bill. His brain was perfect. It was. It must be the fault of the world, then, that he could not feel. So he's he's shut off from his emotions, and he says, well, this, there's a problem with the world because of that. Uh, he says on the top of the next page, it might be possible, Septimus thought, looking at England from the train window as they left New Haven, it might be possible that the world itself is without meaning. So he's becoming nihilistic. There is no meaning to any of this. Now, here he opens Shakespeare once more. That boy's business of the intoxication of language, Antony and Cleopatra, had shriveled utterly. How Shakespeare loathed humanity, the putting on of clothes, the getting of children, the sordidity of the mouth and the belly. This was how uh, now revealed to Septimus, the message hidden in the beauty of words, the secret signal which one generation passes under disguise to the next is loathing, hatred, despair. Dante the same, Aeschylus translated the same. So the literature that he, you know, remember Shakespeare was one of the his great enthusiasms as a young man before he went off to war. Now, again, that, that intoxication of language that so captivated him is gone. All he sees is Shakespeare's loathing for humanity, his hatred of people, um, he says later, the love between man and woman was repulsive to Shakespeare. The business of copulation was filth to him before the end. Um, but Regia said she must have children. They had been married five years. So, again, this is, this is not really an accurate uh, interpretation of Shakespeare. This is telling us a lot about Septimus and how he feels. It's not Shakespeare who finds love between men and women repulsive, it's Septimus. Uh, it's not Shakespeare who loathes humanity, it's Septimus. Um, and he, he, you know, he doesn't want to have children. He says one cannot bring children into a world like this. Um, he watched her uh, snip shape as one watches a bird hop, flit on the grass, without daring to move a finger. For the truth is, let her ignore it, that human beings have neither kindness nor faith nor charity beyond what serves to increase the pleasure of the moment. They hunt in packs. Their packs scour the desert and vanish screaming into the wilderness. They desert the fallen. They are plastered over with grimaces. So this is a very dark, very nihilistic view of humanity. Uh, so this is why he doesn't want to have uh, uh, doesn't want to have a child with Lucretia. And look on twenty two oh six when they have this conversation about having children. He says that she doesn't want them. Um, she could not grow old and have no children. She was very lonely. She was very unhappy. She cried for the first time since they were married. Far away, he heard her sobbing. 
He heard it accurately. He noticed it distinctly. He compared it to a piston thumping. But he felt nothing. So they bring in Dr. Holmes, who's going to uh, see what's wrong with him. And he says, there's nothing the matter, whatever. Says, And uh, uh, Lucretia says, oh, what a relief, thank goodness. Um, and th- this is, you know, I, I think... Dr. Holmes is just wrong. Obviously, there is something the matter, but it's not something that he is able to understand. But look how depressed that diagnosis makes Septimus. So there was no excuse. This is the bottom of 2206. Nothing whatever the matter, except the sin for which human nature had condemned him to death and which he did not feel. He had not cared when Evans was killed. That was worst. But all the other crimes raised their heads and shook their fingers and jeered and sneered over the rail of the bed in the early hours of the morning at the prostrate body which lay realizing its degradation, how he had married his wife without loving her, had lied to her, seduced her, outraged Miss Isabel Pole, and was so pocked and marked with vice that women shuddered when they saw him in the street. The verdict of human nature on such a wretch was death." So the, the doctor doesn't give him a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is or, or what they would have called in, in the 20s shell shock. Um, and um, many uh, uh, men coming home from World War I suffered from that. Um, but so he feels it as a, a moral failing on his part, that it, it, he deserves death for uh, the, the way he feels. Um, now the the doctor, Doctor Holmes, says that health is largely a matter in your in our own control, um, and Septimus, you know, doesn't see that, and he comes to really loathe Doctor Holmes, um, and and Lucretia doesn't understand this, uh, you know, he, he wants to get away from Doctor Holmes, but she says Doctor Holmes was such a kind man, he was so interested in Septimus, he only wanted to help him, um, so he was deserted. He says, the whole world was clamoring, kill yourself, kill yourself for our sakes. But why should he kill himself for their sakes? Food was pleasant, the sun was hot, and this killing oneself, how does one set about it? With a table knife, uglily, with floods of blood, by sucking a gas pipe? He was too weak, he could scarcely raise his hand. So he's thinking about killing himself, but he almost doesn't want to give them the satisfaction. Um, but she real and he begins to speak to Evans. Uh, the, you know, the dead were speaking to him. Uh, his condition is getting worse and worse. And so this is all of the kind of the background that leads up to their consulting on this day. The specialist, Doctor William, Sir William Bradshaw. And as we see, Bradshaw's diagnosis is completely different than Doctor Holmes. Look at uh, the top of 2209. Uh, It was was a case of extreme gravity. It was a case of complete breakdown, complete physical and nervous breakdown with every symptom in an advanced stage. He ascertained in two or three minutes, writing answers to questions, murmured discreetly on a pink pink card. Uh, How long had Dr. Holmes been attending him? Six weeks. Prescribed a little bromide. Said there was nothing the matter. Ah, yes, these general practitioners, thought Sir William. It took half his time to undo their blunders. Some were irreparable. Um, So, all right, so he sees this as, you know, this this is very serious. But look at uh, a little further down the page. 
and they have the very highest opinion of you at your office, Sir William murmured, glancing at Mr. Brewer's very generously worded letter, so that you have nothing to worry you, no financial anxiety, nothing. He had committed an appalling crime and been condemned to death by human nature. This is the, the, the guilt and self-loathing that Septimus feels. I have, I have, he began, committed a crime. He has done nothing wrong whatever, Reja assured the doctor. If Mr. Smith would wait, said Sir William, he would speak to Mrs. Smith in the next room. Her husband was very seriously ill, Sir William said. Did he threaten to kill himself? Oh, he did, she cried. Um, so uh, there's this moment he's, he's telling them what he feels. The doctor's not interested in that. He cuts him off. He's going to go talk with his wife. And um, he says, it's really just a matter of rest. Delightful home, a delightful home down in the country where her husband would be perfectly looked after. Um, as says, Williams never spoke of madness. He called it not having a sense of proportion. So no, we don't want to say he's mad. He's just lost his sense of proportion. And we'll take him to you know our, our home where he'll uh, take care of him and everything will be better. And you, know, you would think that this would be good, but it seems that Sir William is just as oblivious to what's really wrong with uh, uh, Septimus as Dr. Holmes was. Uh, a, a lot of this, this section, these sections of the novel where we get into Septimus's head and his, his insanity and his dealing with the doctors who don't understand them is particularly poignant if you know that Virginia Woolf herself suffered from mental illness and was committed. And, and in fact, she eventually committed suicide about 20 years after she, had, she wrote uh, uh, Mrs. Dalloway. So there's a real bite to the the criticisms she has of the the medical establishment, the psychological establishment, such as it was at the time. And notice that uh, Lucretia understands this too. She understands that uh, Bradshaw is not really a help, a help either. The top of 2211, never, never had Regia felt such agony in her life. She had asked for help and been deserted. He had failed them. Sir William Bradshaw was not a nice man. Uh, the, un, un, uh, the upkeep of that motor car alone must cost him quite a lot, said Septimus, when they got out into the street. She clung to his arm. They had been deserted. But what more did she want? But she's going along with this because she has nowhere to turn. She doesn't think this will help, but nothing else has helped either. And then we get into Sir William's head, and we see his perspective on this. Uh, starts at, uh, on 2211. Health we must have, and health is proportion, so that when a man comes into your room and says he is Christ, a common delusion, and has a message, as they mostly have, and threatens, as they often do, to kill himself, you invoke proportion, or to rest in bed, rest in solitude, silence and rest, rest without friends, without books, without messages, six months rest, until a man who went in weighing seven stone six comes out weighing twelve. So what he's saying is complete isolation, no books, no friends, uh, but you do get fatter. Um, you gain weight. Um, proportion, 
divine proportion, Sir William's goddess was acquired by Sir William walking hospitals, catching salmon, begetting one son in Harley. So he feels like he has a very, his life is exhibits this proportion, a worshiping proportion. Sir William not only uh, not only prospered himself, but made England prosper, secluded her lunatics, forbade childbirth, penalized despair, made it impossible for the unfit to propagate their views until they too shared his sense of proportion. Uh, now again, this is, gets very sinister here. Uh, his he, he's got the sense of proportion that he's going to impose on them uh, for the, for the good of England. Um, you know, we won't let them have children. That would be bad. We we were going to penalize despair. Uh, we don't want their uh, their unpopular views out there until they've been made to conform. There's something very tyrannical about this. And it goes into this at the bottom of 2211. But proportion has a sister, less smiling, more formidable, a goddess even now engaged in the heat and sands of India, the mud and swamp of Africa, the purlieus of London, wherever, in short, the climate or the devil tempts men to fall from the true belief which is her own, is even now engaged in dashing down shrines, smashing idols, and setting up in their place her own stern countenance. Conversion is her name, and she feasts on the wills of the weakly, long, uh, loving to impress, to impose, adoring her own features stamped on the face of the populace. So this the 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 way you get to proportion is by conversion, and notice that it is an, it's analogized with the kind of imperial conversion imposition of the British Empire on other countries on India on Africa, um, you know where you smash their idols and make them good Christians, uh, that kind of thing. So again, there's a very sinister dark side to this idea of proportion. It's um, It's conversion. As it says on the top of 2212, it offers help but desires power. Uh, So that's what, that's Sir William Bradshaw's viewpoint. It it looks like it's a help, but it's really a desire for power and control. It says, uh, concealed as she mostly is, that is conversion, under some plausible disguise, some venerable name, love, duty, self-sacrifice. So all of these uh, ideals that are used there, but those those are just a cover for conversion, for control, for tyranny. And that's the philosophy that William Bradshaw has. And so when these generally, genuinely disturbed people come to him, this is all that Bradshaw has to offer. Uh, look at the, the bottom of 2212. Why live, they demanded. Sir William replied that life was good. Certainly Lady Bradshaw and ostrich feathers hung over the mantelpiece, and as for his his income, it was quite 12,000 a year. Oh, life is good. My, my wife has a, a new, an ostrich feather uh, a boa, and I make 12,000 a year. But to us, they protested, life has given no such bounty, he acquiesced. They lacked a sense of proportion. And perhaps, after all, there is no God. He shrugged his shoulders. In short, 
this living or not living is an affair of our own. But there they were mistaken. Sir William had a friend in Surrey uh, where they taught what, what Sir William frankly admitted was a difficult art, a sense of proportion. There were, moreover, family affection, honor, courage, and a brilliant career. All of these had in Sir William a resolute champion. So they, again, they come to him with these things and say, oh, well, you just need a sense of proportion. Uh, you, you know, if you were rich and successful like I am, you wouldn't be in this mess. Um, when they say, what if there is no God? He just shrugs. He says, why live? Well, life is good. Well, these are not really very helpful answers. Look at the, uh, the section on the top of 2213. Uh, but Reja Warren Smith cried walking down Harley Street that she did not like that man. She she got his number. Shredding and slicing, dividing and subdividing, the clocks of Harley Street nibbled at the June day, counseled submission, upheld authority, and pointed out in chorus the supreme advantages of a sense of proportion until the mound of time was so far diminished that a commercial clock suspended above a shop in Oxford Street announced genially and fraternally, as if it were a pleasure to Messrs. Rigby and Lodens, to give the inf information gratis that it was half past one. Now, this is, again, we hear the, the chiming of the clocks. Uh, Wolf keeps the, the, the time in our minds throughout this. But notice what it's saying about the, the clocks. Shredding, slicing, dividing, subdividing. Uh, they're uh, imposing authority, counseling submission. So now the the clocks become agents of this sense of proportion. Uh, they are, uh, again, uh, dissecting. There's this kind of, of very clinical feeling to it. And that's how the, the chiming of the clock feels after this visit to uh, Bradshaw. Uh, again, this is a very stinging indictment of the the, the medical uh, community of her time, uh, of how, you know, Bradshaw, Sir William Bradshaw, claims to be helping, but he has no real sense of understanding or compassion for the people he's pretending to be helping. And even uh, Lucretia understands that. All right, well, we will stop there for now. Uh, for next time, I would like you to read uh, from pages 214 through 2214, excuse me, through 2239. And in this section, we're going to see uh, uh, Richard Dalloway, and he's having lunch with, with Hugh Whitbread. And uh, think about how, what he thinks of Hugh and what uh, what's he thinking about? How is Mr. Dalloway's consciousness different from that of the other characters that we've seen before? Uh, we're also going to meet a, a character that has been mentioned, but we haven't really seen before, is uh, Miss Kilman, uh, who is a friend of Elizabeth Dalloway, Mrs. Dalloway's uh, daughter. Uh, I think she's a very important character as a kind of a foil for Miss Dalloway. They don't like each other, and think about why that is. What's the conflict between them? Uh, we, we spend some time also with Elizabeth Dalloway, and uh, she is, a, 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 again, an, another foil for Clarissa. Think about how her uh, way of thinking differs or is similar to her mother's. 
Uh, finally, this section will end. We, we return to Septimus and Lucretia as they're waiting for Dr. Bradshaw to come and take uh, Septimus away to the asylum. Uh, and think about their interaction here. Uh, it's, it's a moment of happiness for them. And why is that? How Think about how that happiness occurs and what's going on in Septimus's head at this point. So let me, again, thank you for your attention, and we will discuss the next section of Mrs. Dalloway next time.